Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast with me, your host, Cindy Parker. I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day, and I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This is the final part of the conversation with Dr. Nicholas Shazer, the professor of Hebrew Bible at Israel Bible Center. We've been talking about his course, The Hebrew Psalms, How to Worship God. Throughout these episodes, Dr. Shazer keeps mentioning the community's use of the Psalms. I think it's important because the ancient Israelites and Second Temple Jews thought of themselves as a community and not so individualistic as we are these days. I'm curious if when we think about the Second Temple community, do we know how they were using the Psalms? There's actually several different Second Temple communities, right? So it's it's something that I don't think that a lot of Bible readers actually appreciate, and that is that we would want to talk about, I guess, maybe multiple Judaisms in the Second Temple period. By the way, in case you're curious, there is a course at IBC called The Stories of Jewish Christ, and this course gives the background for these communities. I personally think it is essential for everyone to understand how complex the Jewish community was in order to appropriately understand the gospel writings. Okay, before I interrupted, Dr. Shazer was talking about the multiple Judaisms. So, for example, let's take one community, right? the Dead Sea Scroll writers, okay? How did they use the Psalms? Well, on the one hand, they copied the Psalms. So they copied them. They literally, the, the Hebrew text that is in the, your Bibles today, they were copied for posterity. On the other hand, they interpreted them. There is something in, in, the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls called Pesher. Pesher interpretation literally means like interpreting the text, essentially. And so that they would interpret the Psalms vis-a-vis their own experience. Hmm. That is, when David says X, David is talking about something that's happening to us. Okay? Right. So that's, that's one way that they used it. Um, and another way, actually, there's some literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Hodayot literature, which is Thanksgiving songs that sound a lot like the Psalms. They're built in the same poetic way. They've got the same flow. They've got the same form, but they're not the Psalms. They are, the, if you want, the Psalms of the Dead Sea Scroll community. So not only were they referencing the actual biblical Psalms, but they were using them as templates for their mm. own prayers. Mm. So there's three different main ways that, that the Dead Sea Scroll community is using it. And I think that it might be helpful to, uh, to kind of uh, focus on, on the second one that I mentioned, and that is the use of the Psalms, these ancient texts, these old dusty texts, to use them as speaking to the present day or the contemporary mm. period of the Second Temple. Now, Again, as I've said, we Bible readers do that today. You know, how, how can I read Psalm 38 and apply it to my own experience? That's a valid move. 
I would say that that's step two. Step one is understanding how the ancient Israelites used it. And then we can, we're very free to take step two. But by the second temple period and the period of the, the writers of the New Testament, the Psalms had taken on a very interesting kind of valence. Because as I noted, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, is separated between the Ketuvim, the writings, that's the Psalms and other texts like the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Ruth, and then the prophets, right? So we've got the prophetic literature and the Psalms. By the second temple period, the Psalms are being understood as prophetic literature in many ways. That Mm -hmm. is, as literature that is pointing to some future event or future Mm. expectation. Mm. We get this, you know, all the time in, say, for example, in the book of Acts. So we have Peter holding forth uh, before other fellow Jews in Acts chapter 2, saying, Mm -hmm. you know, Psalm 16, it says, you know, the psalmist says, "In the Lord, don't abandon my body to Sheol or let my flesh see decay. But the Peter says, I can tell you that David is dead and is literally decaying right now in the grave. So what was the psalmist really talking about? Pointing ahead to the Messiah and Jesus's mm-hmm. resurrection, because mm-hmm. God does not abandon Jesus to Sheol or let uh, his flesh see decay. Mm-hmm. So that is linking the Psalms saying that um, they, they might have meant something in their historical context, but they, they've got like a, a, a secondary meaning now. It's what my advisor, uh, Amy Jill Levine, is wont to call double dipping. Uh, huh. And, and that <laughs> That's is so good. <laughs> yeah, you, you dip once for the, act, for the historical uh, psalmist and, and, uh, and the psalmist's context, and then you can dip again when it comes to the New Testament and Jesus. And that way you're not sacrificing either meaning, right? right. Um, but, but okay, so why, why would somebody like Peter come to this idea? that actually the Psalms are talking about the Messiah to come in this sort of prophetic sense. Mm-hmm. Well, the Psalms are replete with a kind of, if you want, messianic or Davidic uh, expectation. We, we, we talked about that imprecatory Psalm when the people are already in Babylon and they're weeping by the, by the streams of Babylon. He is referring to Psalm 137 that we talked about last week. If you missed out on his explanation about why there are psalms about the real trauma of exile or why there is sacred text that ends up pleading with God to smash infants against the rocks, then you really should go back and listen to last week's episode. So what do these imprecatory psalms have to do with the Second Temple Jewish community? Well, that was a real problem, the exile for the people of Israel. Why? Because God had previously promised David that his kingdom would go on forever and no one would ever cease to be sitting on the Davidic throne. You can read about this, by the way, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So when the people are exiled and the Davidic monarchy is sort of, you know, stopped for that period, what do you do? So now you go back to all those promises in the Bible and the Psalms and what's going to happen now? So the idea was, This has to be pointing to a future Davidic leader, a future messianic figure who's going to come and save us like David did. Um, So, for example, you can get you get a lot of that right at the beginning of the Psalms, actually, in Psalm chapter two. And actually, Psalm one and two, it's pretty clear. uh, Originally, we're we're one psalm. Uh, Here's how the the text starts of Psalm two. It says, I won't read the Hebrew, but I'm I'm translating. I'll translate it into English. So it says, why do the uh, the nations Ragash, why do the nations, I guess, rage, uluumim, uh, and why do the peoples um, meditate in vain, like think about vain things? Why do they? Why do the kings of the earth stand together, and and the leaders congregate with one another? 
And then it goes on to say, who are they congregating against? It says, Al Hashem Va'al Meshicho. They congregate, these kings of the, of the land stand against the Lord and against his Mashiach, his Messiah. And Mashiach in Hebrew just means anointed one. So in the context of Psalm 2, who are we talking about? The anointed Davidic king. And in fact, the text goes on and God says, the psalmist says, I want to tell of a decree that God gave me. This is actually down in verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7. The, the psalmist says that, that God gave a hook, a, a decree, Amar Eli, saying to me, Bani Ata, God says to the psalmist, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so what we have here is father and son language a familial language between God and the, the Davidic king, the anointed Davidic king. Now, again, this is written prior to the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians. Once that happens, though, again, where does this promise go? Does it just float into the ether? Of course not. When, when Jews came home from Babylon, when King Cyrus let them go home, they come home, they rebuild the temple. So now we're in the second temple period, and they are reading the same Psalms. So what would you do? Right? If the Davidic kingdom is, is defunct, you've got to be reading these Psalms and thinking, God's not going to fail on God's promises, and God's going to send someone else. Hence, all of the messianic expectation that we get in the time of Jesus of Nazareth, and one of the several Judaisms that we get in the, in the nascent, quote-unquote, Christian movement. Um, but really, it's Judaism. It's, it's a form of Judaism that happens to follow this guy named Yeshua of Nazareth, and they believe him to be the Mashiach, that, that something like Psalm 2 is foreshadowing. Hmm. When we think about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Dead Sea Scroll community, I'm right, I think, in that the, of the copies of scrolls that we have, we have the most of the Psalms. Is yep. that right? It's Psalms, mm-hmm. Isaiah, and Deuteronomy, which seems to suggest that those were the texts that were circulating the most. So what assumptions can we make about how familiar people were with the Psalms? I mean, is it something Mm. they were reading every week in synagogue? Were they memorizing these? Were they singing them in their homes? Is there, Mm. what, what kind of assumptions do we have? Yeah, gosh, that is a great question. It's, it's, I don't think it's one I'm going to be able to answer fully because I, truthfully, I just don't know exactly how they're functioning. But if we want to take the example of the Dead Sea Scroll group if we want to, i don't even know if we want to talk to them talk about them as a community it's very very unclear but right. but we we know there's a group of people there's a group of people who are writing these psalms and recording them yeah. as you mentioned Deuteronomy and Isaiah are also big favorites of this group and we know there's a group okay we, because there's there's a text that scholars call the community rule okay. in in the dead sea literature that's talking about like what do you do and what don't you do to be a part of the group okay so in this group how are they using the Psalms? Well, they're clearly well-educated, well-familiar with the Psalms enough to build their own Psalms on them. Hmm, right. So not only do they know the content of the Psalms because they're you know, recording it, they're, they're copying it, but they also have this kind of, I think, inbuilt ability to express themselves in the same kind of format hmm. that the Psalms yeah. express themselves. And so what that tells me is, can I say that everybody, you know, in the Galilee on whatever, King Judah Street, you know, were singing <laughs> the Psalms in their, in their homes as they're cooking Shabbos dinner? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that they had all that material memorized. But what I do know is if they're praying, 
I think that they're praying in the form that the Psalms offers. Hmm. So that is, it's just a, a way of thought. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of speaking and relating to God that I think would have been pretty strongly imbued, um, hmm. even in the common person, the person who goes to synagogue. Right. You know, and for sure, these texts are deeply ingrained for the the scribes, for the the elite thinkers, the right. you know the Bible teachers of their day. You know, it's funny you bring up Psalms and Isaiah and Deuteronomy as as kind of the favorites of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The rabbis, the, the later rabbis after Jesus, who I'm convinced knew the whole Bible by heart. The more and more I, I read the rabbis, the yeah. more and more I'm convinced of this. But if you can see behind me, that the, there's about ten volumes of a blue hardcover text. That's yeah. That's called Midrash Rabbah. So that's the rabbinic um, commentary on certain biblical books. And their favorite texts to quote are the Psalms, Deuteronomy, huh. and Isaiah. So for some reason, these texts stuck uh, with the people. And, yeah. and, and when it comes to the Psalms, I think that one of the main reasons is because of the poetic format, uh, because of the mnemonic mm. ability, the ability to remember yeah. that kind of form. And, and of course, just the mm. beauty of the Psalms themselves. There's no... It's no surprise that the Psalms were such a mainstay in Second Temple Judaism, in in the New Testament. By the way, the most quoted biblical text in the New Testament is Psalm 110, which mm. you know talks about God uh, making David's enemies a footstool. And there's also the text about Melchizedek, uh, David being in the line of Melchizedek. Anyway, and that runs all the way through the rabbinic material. So one of the things that all these mm. different Judaisms actually share is a love of and a reverence for and a reuse, a repurposing of the psalmic corpus. One of the things that you do in your course that I think is really fascinating and is, again, so important for our modern audiences to get is the New Testament use of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament and how, for example, Jesus himself uses quite a few of the psalms and Mm -hmm. will quote a portion of the psalm. And sometimes modern audiences miss that altogether because we're not familiar enough. It's not ingrained in us. Mm. And so we, we miss the reference. Uh, right. But we're often quite mistaken because we only go back and look at those words in the psalm and we yeah. don't read the whole entire thing. So could you tell yeah. us, like, when Jesus is quoting the psalms yeah. in modern day, how are we supposed to interact with that material? Definitely. Great question. If I had like one, my most important thing for Bible readers, New Testament readers to remember today as they're reading the New Testament, this is it. Yeah. Which is when you see an Old Testament text cited in the New Testament, go back and read the entire passage. If it's cited from a particular chapter, read the whole chapter. If it's cited from a particular Psalm, read the whole Psalm. I promise that there will be contextual material that the New Testament writers don't cite on the page, but are expecting you to know, (laughs) okay? This goes back to the whole, I said that the rabbis, I think, memorize the whole thing. The rabbis do this too. That is, they'll cite a little bit of a text to prove a point. And sometimes the text that they cite doesn't prove the point. What (laughs) proves the point? The very next sentence in the Bible, because they're not interested in what's on the page. They actually think that you know everything. All right. So now, of course, we can't hope to know everything. But one of the tools that we have is the ability to go back and look at the entire context. So I'll give you a quick example, likely the most famous example of Jesus citing the Psalms, and that's on the cross. 
oh, this might be one of my most favorite examples. But I will mention that Dr. Shazer goes through several of these kinds of examples in his course. Did you know that the Sermon on the Mount is also connected to the Psalms? See? There are just so many good reasons to enroll and take the course on Psalms and worship. Of course, there's a link in the show notes. In Matthew and in Mark, Jesus cites the, the, the first verse of Psalm 22, uh, which is Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, and actually in the, in the Gospels, the, the Gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, they go out of their way to write it in Aramaic and then to translate it. So they write what Jesus says in Aramaic, Jesus is an Aramaic speaker, and then they translate it into Greek, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So why did they make such a big deal out of this? Yeah. You know, they, they could have breezed by it. They, they could have not had the Aramaic. They couldn't have not taken the time to translate it. Why do they dwell on it so much? Because the whole point is to send you back to the entire Psalm. Because if you read Psalm 22, yes, it's a Psalm of lament in the beginning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the sound of my pleading? Well, that's exactly how Psalm 5 starts. So that is a lament psalm. But you know, as you, as you get further into it, God shows up and God actually vindicates the psalmist. Ultimately, God saves the psalmist. And what does the psalmist say in response to this? That I'm going to tell future generations yep. of your power, God, a people yet unborn will know of you. Okay. So that essentially is the New Testament gospel in a nutshell. Right. Meaning Jesus suffers. God then shows up on the other side of death, raises Jesus from the dead, vindicates him. And, and based on that, Jesus and his disciples ensure that the power and message of God through Jesus goes to a people yet unborn. Um, and, and has continued to do so since the biblical period, I should say. So that's pretty incredible. You know, and what's even more interesting about Psalm 22 hmm. is that the details of the psalmist experience dovetail with that of Jesus. Hmm. The psalmist is going to say, you know, things like, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth and my bones are all out of joint. Mm -hmm. Now, the Gospels don't go into the details of Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, despite films like, um, you know, The Passion of the Christ, uh, where it's very lengthy and gory and bloody, um, Mark's gospel actually just has, and they crucified him. That's it. That's it. Uh, so they, the gospel writers don't dwell on the gory details, but it's difficult to read a crucifixion scene and not go back to the Psalms and say, oh, wow, isn't that an interesting coincidence that the psalmist, bone, he, he, you know, metaphorically is expressing his, his grief or his struggle saying that my bones are out of joint. There's another um, sentence in Psalm 22 that's actually a, a point of ongoing scholarly debate, and that is in most English translations you're going to see, and I forget exactly which, uh, which verse it is. I'm just going to flip to Psalm 22 really quickly so I can give everybody that reference. And it is Psalm 22, verse 16. And it says, For dogs encompass me, and a company of evildoers encircles me, They've pierced my hands and feet. Okay, so I'll do this. Try, try to be as brief and as clear as possible. But pierce my hands and feet. All right, so in the, in the Masoretic text of the Hebrew, the text on which your Old Testaments are built, mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the only Hebrew text tradition that we have. For example, we are talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. They've got their own versions of the Psalms. We've got other Hebrew versions as well, other than what's called the Masoretic tradition. But in the Masoretic tradition, if you want the kind of standardized Hebrew tra- uh, tradition, it doesn't say they've pierced my hands and feet. It says, Ka'ari, like a lion, my hands and feet. Now, that doesn't make a ton of sense in Hebrew. Um, it's kind of weird and like there's something left out. That doesn't mean it's not the reading because as we, as we saw, the Psalms are elastic, okay? And actually a couple of verses beforehand, the psalmist does say, like a lion, I'm surrounded, ka'ari, okay? So it's possible that it's ka'ari like a lion, fair enough. But the Greek translation has, they've pierced my hands and feet, not like a lion, but they've pierced. Okay, literally in Greek, it's like to bear out, to, to stick something in and to pull something out, like a, make a hole, all right? Yeah. So that's in the Greek, that's what, is happening to the psalmist's hands and feet. Now, for a long time before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, there was a question mark as to why there's the difference there. And the Dead Sea Scroll version of this actually has not ka'ari like a lion, like the Masoretic text, but ka'aru, they pierced. And so we've got this early tradition of this piercing reading that the Septuagint, right, an earlier contemporary of the Dead Sea Scrolls, clearly picks up on and knows. And so the, the diff, I should say, that why is there the difference? Because the difference between ka'ari and ka'aru is the tiniest dash of a pen. Uh, ka'ari, like a lion, ends with the Hebrew letter yud. It's the tiniest letter in the, uh, in the Hebrew alphabet, as my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter says when we're studying Hebrew letters. She always gets to the yud and she goes, teeny tiny yud, like that. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and so it's, it's small, right? But ka'aru, they have pierced, is with a vav at the end, which is, looks just like a yud with like a tiny little tail on the bottom of it. So it could, yeah. it's just a stroke of a pen, right, as the difference. So anyway, there, there's good textual um, evidence for the pierced my hands and feet reading. And of course, that's the Septuagint reading that the New Testament writers would have known. Um, I should note one more thing about Psalm 22, and that is an explicit reference to what happens with Jesus on the cross. So this is how we know, actually, that readers of the Passion narrative, the crucifixion narrative, are actually meant to go back and read the psalm like this, because Psalm 22, 18 says, they divide my garments among them, and for Mm -hmm. my clothing they cast lots. Well, in, the, in Mark and Matthew and in Luke, the, there's a casting of lots by the Roman soldiers uh, for Jesus' garments that they mm-hmm. strip him of. So, and it's even, it's funny, the Gospel of John, which is later than the Synoptic Gospels, is actually the only text that actually cites Psalm twenty-two eighteen. 18. Uh, the writer of John's thinking, in case you didn't get this <laughs> before, I feel compelled to just cite the text explicitly. This was to fulfill they cast garments for my clothing, okay? <laughs> I love John know. for those reasons. Exactly. <laughs> right. like, Thank I'm going to use John. beautiful language. And then just in case you missed it, I'm going to emphasize it again. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Yep. So we know that the gospel writers wanted us to go back yeah. and read Psalm 22 as a whole. So I think that's really the prime example of, of why we desperately needing to be re- need to be reading these texts in their original context in the Bible. Yeah, and I love everything you just said and explained about Psalm 22. If, if Jesus, by quoting just the first line, is actually making reference to all of that and with that yeah. victorious declaration at the yeah. end, that is such a different point than 
what so many people say that God turned his face away from his son on the cross. Like, oh, yeah, right. like we now we just lost like the beauty and the fullness <laughs> and the richness of the psalm. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So for sure, the, the Jesus knows, I mean, look at Jesus has said three times in the Synoptic Gospels ahead of time, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised from the dead. Jesus knows that God is going to vindicate him here. And, and so it's less about Jesus feeling forsaken in like in a literalistic way. Jesus is a human being though. So, I mean, if I'm on a cross, mm-hmm. I'm feeling pretty forsaken myself. Right. So not to completely shelf that, but you're right, Cindy. The, the point is, is to say, I'm allowed to feel suffering and aloneness in this moment, but I know that God is going to vindicate me. Just like the psalmist in Psalm 22, Jesus knows this ahead of time and is pointing us to this fact that God doesn't abandon us. God won't abandon Jesus for sure. It's funny, yeah, just the fluttering of the first verse is all Jesus needs. And it's all the New Testament writers need to get us back to this amazing theological complexity um, that I think should continue to have resonance for Bible readers today. Absolutely. So as is always the case, uh, normally when professors build a course and then teach a course, there's always something we get back in return that is from student interaction. So as students have been interacting with you on your material, because you cover so much more in your course than what we just covered, are there things that you've kind of come to see about the Psalms in a new way just just because of the way you put the course together and are interacting with your students online about it? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Torah from, from like a narrative perspective. If I have a favorite section of Israel's scriptures, it's the first five books of the Bible. It's, it's the Mosaic Torah. And the Psalms are, are a little bit trickier because they take us actually out of a strict narrative of the people of Israel in historical chronological order. That is to say, they're, they're prayers. And as I said, they're not prayers in a vacuum or in a bottle. But nonetheless, they, they don't charge forward in a, this happened here, this happened here. It's not the book of numbers, for example. Right, okay? right. And so from my perspective, I, I had always, while loving the Psalms, I just had a different relationship, but in interacting with my students, I'm always impressed to see their links to Torah in the prophets. So their links to even the more narrative sections of say Isaiah or Jeremiah, that is the ability of students to link this material to things that have gone previously in the narrative and to note that, you know what, they're reshaping it, the Psalms are, and adding to it and almost expanding our view of some of that narrative historical material. So in that way, I've gained a, a a deeper appreciation for the Psalms from student interaction because, uh, yeah, they, they, um, they add just wonderful theological lacquer onto the top of, of the Torah narrative that I don't think that we as Bible readers should be missing. Thank you for joining us this week on Israel Bible Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and rate it if you are listening on a podcast platform like Apple Podcast, Overcast, or Google Podcast, or wherever you're getting your podcasts. If you like what you hear in this podcast, sign up for this course or explore Israel Bible Center's flagship certificate program on Jewish context and culture. There is a link in the episode notes. 
And as a special bonus, and as a thank you for listening to this podcast, use the coupon code ISRAEL, that's ISRAEL in all capital letters, when you register and you will receive a free surprise. Who doesn't like surprises? Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. I look forward to next week. 